I'll read the chapter, uh, then consider from chapter seven, uh, from verse seven to ten. James chapter four. What causes quarrels, and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. On your passions, sorry. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is not it is to no it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one, who's, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Thus far is the word of God. Let us pray. We pray, Father, that as we consider your word, you may indeed be gracious to open our eyes without your spirit Lord we cannot grasp and understand the depth of it we ask this morning that you may open our eyes to receive this word with meekness help us to submit to it Lord help us to not merely be hearers but also be doers of your word Forgive us, Lord, for our sins, for we know that our sin blinds us. 
makes us deaf. Help us that as we come, we will come with hearts that are prepared to hear your word. And we pray that your word will fall on a fertile soil where it will produce 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, all for the glory and honor of your name. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. They say that there are, there are two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. And as we've been looking at the book of James, we could add a third thing in the life of a believer. And the third thing that is certain in the life of a believer is the struggle with indwelling sin. As we began in chapter 1, we considered that for a Christian, they may struggle to do the word of God. For a Christian, they may struggle with the sin of partiality. Chapter 3, a Christian may struggle with taming his tongue. Last week, we began at looking at the quarrels and the fights within the body of Christ. Chapter 4 begins, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? We often think that the cause of our conflict is the other person. If only the other person could change. If only the other person could understand me. We often think that conflict is external, but James says no. Conflict is within us. It is internal. And he says the root of human conflict is rooted internally. The reason why we have conflict is because of what is going inside of our heart. And the first reason he gives us in verse 2 is our desire, our lust. And he says, you, de you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You, you do not have because you do not ask. And then verse 3 gives us another reason. It's because of our passions or pleasures. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Second reason there for conflict is passions. Then verse 4, we, we are given the reason again for a conflict. He says, it is our adulterous heart. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Idolatry is spiritual idolatry. When you come to a point when something is more important to us than the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not guilty of only idolatry, we are guilty of spiritual adultery. In fact, James calls us that we are friends of the world. Friends of the world is to be enemy of God. When we are involved with quarrels and fights, and conflict, we are guilty of spiritual adultery, we are practically rejecting God in our life, as we saw in verse 5 and 6, we are rejecting His Word, His Word has no purpose in our life, 
verse 6 we, we are rejecting his grace we are rejecting his spirit this is what we considered last week we looked at the root cause of human conflict and this morning I'd like us to consider the cure the cure for human conflict and right away in verse 6 we're given the cure because verse 7 says submit yourselves therefore to God what is this therefore therefore is taking back to taking us back to verse 6 and in verse 6 we are told that our greatest need brethren is grace and more grace and James in verse 6 is leading us to a place of grace the greatest need that we have as Christians is grace grace is the supernatural power and ability that God gives us to enable us to live for him without the grace of God you and I cannot do anything of spiritual value you need the grace of God to worship him this morning you need the grace of God to live a holy and a righteous life grace is our greatest need and everyone of us here desperately needs grace James tells us that the person to whom more grace is given is a humble person, verse 6. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud to say what? God works actively against the proud. He stands against them. But if you're a humble person, God promises you something. He promises to give you grace. And grace is not merely the enablement. Grace is not a force or a strength merely. Grace is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so you and I should not waste our time striving to live a Christian life if we will not seek his grace. Because he says he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so, how in the world do we get humble? What is required in being humble? Verse 7 to 10 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In those four verses, we have ten commands. Ten commands to being humble. And the first command is submit, verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. The second command is resist the devil and he will flee from you. The third command is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Number four, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Number five, purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Number six, seven, eight, be wretched and mourn and weep. Number nine, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then lastly, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God says, if you want to be, if you want grace, you have to be humble. And for you to be humble, you're given these imperatives, these ten commands to help you to be humble. I'll, cut, I'll, I'll break it down into three parts. But if you're seated here this morning and this doesn't seem very interesting to you, it's because you're a proud person. Everyone should be coming this morning to this text with the awareness of his need for humility, crying out to God in need of his grace. And if God commands you, if the condition for God to give you grace is to be humble, then you're willing to go overboard to be humble to receive his grace. We cannot afford to go through life without God's grace. And here we are given 10 commands. <clears throat> Notice how this is all connected with the issue of conflict. A humble person will not insist on his way. A humble person will seek the interests of others above his or hers. And a humble person will not be caught up in interpersonal conflict. And so the cure for interpersonal conflict, the first thing we are told there in verse 7, is to submit yourselves therefore to God. And the first point for the cure for interpersonal conflict is submission to the Lordship of God. Verse 7. Submission to the Lordship of God. We must humbly submit ourselves to God. And the first point of action in order to receive grace and to cure interpersonal conflict is to submit to the Lordship of God. It is not that I have attained a certain kind of humility that you should learn from me. This is not a lesson in humility. This is a passage to show us how challenging and overwhelming indeed it is to be humble. If I want grace, I must be humble. If I'm humble, I will avoid interpersonal conflict. And for me to be humble, I must submit myself to God. To submit means to place yourself under a rank. It is a military term. So if I'm submitting to you, I'm placing myself under your authority. So if I submit myself under authority, I've made a decision about the issue of lordship. Because you're submitting to a higher authority. You're submitting to someone who is going to give you orders and directives. And so the issue of submission is the issue of lordship. Who truly is my lord? I'm not asking you whether you're saved. I'm asking you, is God truly your lord? Because to submit under the lordship of Christ is to put yourself completely under his authority. You'll say that 
you will do what God tells you to do. You will want what God wants you to have. We will go where God wants me to go. I will say what God wants me to say. Brethren, isn't all creation under the feet of Jesus Christ? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That all of creation is in subjection to Christ, is submits to Christ. Everything is put under his feet. And he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, speaking of Christ, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Christ rules over all creation. He is preeminent over everything. In Romans chapter 8, we are told that the whole creation is living in submission to God under a curse. That curse is because of our sin. And until then, creation groans, waiting for that curse to be removed. That bondage of decay, that bondage of death, so that all creation is living in submission to God. Then, brethren, should you and I not be in submission to God? Isn't it interesting that God never manipulates? He never forces us to submit to him. God does not make us to submit to him. He offers us to submit to him. And sadly, sometimes we say no. Sometimes we seek to go in the way of the transgressor. God loves when we voluntarily submit to him. We have the example of the parable of the prodigal son. The son asks his father for a share of his inheritance, and he's given his share, and he turns his back on God. And he goes on to live a life of sin. What does the father do? He lets him go. He left the child to take the inheritance and to squander it recklessly. The father waited patiently, waited patiently for his son. And the, the, the son came back. What is God doing? God is waiting for us to submit to his authority. God is waiting for us to bow our knees to him as our commander-in-chief. We need to say that we are no longer the chief of our own life. God is God. He is our king. He is at the helm of our life. And we voluntarily submit to him. Everyone of us must make a choice. Will I voluntarily submit to God, commander-in-chief, or will I continue to be a commander in my own life? This is what God calls us. How does this relate to the issue of conflict? L let me use a military illustration. You have two soldiers in a battle. Both of them are armed, but you have a problem. One is a member of one army, another soldier is a member of another army. So one has one commander-in-chief, and the other has another commander-in-chief. One soldier is commanded to move forward. The other soldier is commanded to move back. One soldier says, we move forward. Another says, we move, we move back. And there's conflict among them because you have two different people with different commanders. 
And that is it for us as Christians. You have someone who is submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Christ is his commander-in-chief. But you have another person who glorifies himself. He's the commander of his own life. And there will be conflict. When you have two people fighting, it's because one person has Christ, another person has his selfish desires and needs. But if Christ is our commander this morning, we will not be in conflict. Why? Because we have his marching orders from his word. And we are able to go and battle and fight because we have the same king, the same Lord. Sometimes, sadly, we don't do that. When I'm the commander of my life, I am proud. Uh, Robert Rayburn says, pride is the idolatry of self. Pride is the idolatry of self. It boils down to this, self is on the throne. I desire to use everything for self. Jonathan Edwards says, pride is the worst viper that is in, my, in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered into the universe. And it lies lowest of all in the foundation of the old building of sin. And is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working, of any lust whatsoever. It is ready to mix with everything. And nothing is so hateful to God and contrary to the spirit of the gospel or of so dangerous consequence. And there is no one sin that does not so much let in the devil into the hearts of the saints and expose them to his delusions. End of quote. Pride is the worst viper that is in the heart. Matthew Henry says, We should take heed of pride. It is a sin that turns angels into devils and the reason why we struggle to submit to the lordship of god is because we are proud pride is the worst viper that is in our heart god hates not only pride but also the proud he says in proverbs chapter 6 there are six things that the lord hates and guess what is the first one in the list he says haughty eyes verse 17. haughty eyes is to look down upon others with disdain you're looking down on others because you think that they are unworthy you have a high opinion of yourself and your own merit and your own worth pride is self-deceiving sin if I'm greedy I know it if I'm selfish I know it but how many this morning can say that my chief sin is that I know that I'm a proud person Pride is one of those sins that we justify in our life. If I were to counsel you and to tell you that your problem is that you're proud, how many will pause and say, yes, truly I'm a proud person. I am a worshipping idolater. Often people say, I'm not proud. We repent of so many sins, but pride is one sin that remains insulated in our heart. It is tough to root it out. It resides so stubbornly in our heart. It is willing to be left alone. But brethren, we need to
put our feet on its neck and kill it. Humility is so hard to attain. St. Augustine was asked in a series of letters, what is the essence of the Christian life? And he answers and says, I will answer you. The first is humility. The second is humility. The third is humility. If there was, if there was ever a foundational virtue to strive for, it is humility. And sadly, the things that our culture celebrates today, they are proud things. No, no one gets an award for being humble. Humility is often seen as weakness. Pride is so subtle. It is hardly noticed. Yet it dwells in each and every single of us this morning. You could be the youngest in our midst. You could be the, only, uh, the oldest. But it is deeply rooted in us. So how does pride lead to quarrel and fights? How does pride lead to quarrels and fight? Proud people are divisive. They are not peacemakers. Pride is driven with knowing everything. So that you see yourself as knowing better than everyone else. A proud person elevates himself in his mind above others. On the other hand, humility seeks to put the interest of others forward before themselves. Jesus Christ was in total submission to his Father. Though he was one with the Father in essence and substance, yet he tells us in John chapter 6, verse 36, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Can we all say that? Can we all say that I exist not to do my will, but the will of God, which is prescribed in scripture. Jesus submitted himself to the Father all the way to the cross, where he died in obedience to God's command. Brethren, if creation is in submission to God, if Christ was in submission to God, should you and I not be in submission to him? How do I know I'm submitting to God's word? I know that I'm submitted to God if every area of my life is under his control. Are you completely surrendered to his will? Your finances, your future, your friendships, your career, your plan, your ambitions, your desires. Are you living in submission to the authority that God has placed you under? Another reason I could say about pride, why pride leads to conflict, is that proud people resist to be taught. They resist to be rebuked. They resist to be criticized. They hate authority. Pride says, who are you to tell me? Pride resists authority because it thinks it should be the authority. Pride hates criticism. In Proverbs, you have the picture of a proud and a fool. And over and over again, you show that the proud and the fool, they are not teachable people. They don't want to, to listen to counsel. 
they think that they know everything. They don't learn from the experiences of others because they're always looking down on others. So we ought to submit to God and to submit to the authority that God has placed in our life. If Christ has treated you better, better than you deserved, why can't you treat others better? Why should you look down on them? Treat others in such a way that they know that they matter, that they are special. And so if I want grace, I must be humble. For me to be humble, I must submit myself to God. Second part of verse 7 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. One of the characteristics of pride that makes it very horrible is that pride is Satan himself. That is the connection here between Satan and pride. Pride is Satan himself. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, the Bible says, talking about the qualification of an elder, it says, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. An elder is not someone who has recently come to faith. Why? You don't bring such young people into, into ministry because there's a danger of them being puffed up and being conceited and ultimately falling into the same sin, the same sin of pride and condemnation which the devil fell into. Satan wanted to lift himself above God. And the first lie ever told to our parents was that they will become like God. Satan is expelled from heaven. The first thing that comes into the universe is pride. It was the principal sin. And when we are proud, sadly, brethren, we are like the devil. When we are humble, we are like Christ. Pride is the sin of Satan himself. Why? Because he wanted to be like God. He wanted to lift himself above God. If I actively make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life, I submit to him. What am I doing? He says there, I am resisting the devil. If you're submitted to God, if every area of your life is under his control, then ultimately you're resisting the devil. You're resisting his desires. To, to make you want to exalt yourself above God. And you're told there that if you resist the devil, what does he do? He flees. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You're not commanded to fight the devil. You're not com commanded to go on the offensive. I resist and what does he do? He flees. I resist, he flees. And sadly, this is one of the excesses of the charismatic movement where they bind and command and cast out the devil the Bible never says you attack the devil the Bible says you resist the devil and he will flee from you we are told to put on the whole armor of God we are told to stand against the devil we are not told to attack 
You're told to stand against the devil. When you put on the all arm of God, you'll be able to resist the devil. And so we resist the devil through his word, sorry, through God's word and prayer. We resist the devil by submitting to God and drawing near to him. We resist the devil as we're given by Christ the example in Matthew chapter 4. What does he do to overcome the temptations of the devil? The word and prayer. And so I submit to the Lordship of Christ of God if I want grace. And then secondly, verse 8 talks of communion with God. He says, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The second point, the second cure for our conflict is our communion with God. We must humbly draw near to God. That is what is instructed there in verse 8. So what does it mean to draw near to God? If I saw you across the road and I said, can we talk? And you said, yes, of course. And you told me to draw near. And then I'm approaching you. So to draw near is to approach God. It's simply to approach God in fellowship, in communion with him. What does fellowship involve? Fellowship involves talking and listening. And so if I'm drawing near to God, I am talking to God, I'm listening to God. And you and I cannot draw near to God apart from scripture and apart from prayer. God speaks to us through his word. So if I have fellowship with God, I have to be in his word. If I'm not reading the word, I'm not fellowshipping with God. And I'm not if I'm not fellowshipping with God, I cannot draw near to God. If I cannot draw near to God, I cannot be humble. If I cannot be humble, I cannot receive his grace. If I cannot receive his grace, I am proud. And if I'm proud, it is possible that I will be in conflict with others. So if I want grace, if I want to be humble, I must be in his word. So how can you know the commander-in-chief, the king of kings, the lord of lords, if you don't open his marching orders? Apart from this book, there's no fellowship with God. There's no humility. There's no grace. You know, the most humbling thing you can do every day is to open the scriptures and read. When you do that, you're acknowledging that you cannot do anything apart from His grace. You know what pride is? Pride is every day you wake up and you walk past your Bible without opening it. When you do that, what are you saying? You're saying, I don't need you. I don't need your word. I don't need your grace. I can get through the day without His word. And what will God do? God sees you and he sees you're a proud person. What does he do? He opposes you. He resists you. He doesn't give you his grace. Why? Because you've chosen to resist him. 
So we must really be in his word. And verse 8, look at the promise in verse 8. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How does God promise? God promises us that when we draw near to him in communion, in fellowship, he will draw near to us. We were created to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And for us to do that, for us to glorify him, we must be in fellowship, in communion with God, praying and listening to him. Then lastly, last point is true repentance. If I want grace, there should be true repentance in my life. I must turn aside my sin of idolatry, my sin of pride. The psalmist says in Psalm 24 verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And he says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. If a child comes and his hands are all dirty and they want to hug their mother, their mother will first seek to clean their hands before they hug them. And that is with us, that is, that is it with, with us also with God. If our hands are dirty, if our heart is not purified, we cannot fellowship with God. We cannot commune with Him. I must make an effort to cleanse myself from sin. And so he says from second part of verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Notice the forceful language that James uses here. We are all aware of the danger of falling back into sin. And he says, cleanse your hands. To cleanse your hands, there is a picture of the outward works, the outward things, the visible things that you do. And he says, cleanse it. The heart there, purify your hearts, has to do with the internal things that are happening inside of you. Why the heart? Because it is the spring of all our acts. How will we be able to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts? One of the ways is submitting to God, communing with Him, and lastly, repenting your sins. As you become aware of your sins, what should you do? You repent. You mourn over your sins. That's the beginning of repentance. Then, in the middle of verse 9, we're told the quality there. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We're given there the quality of our mourning. Because true repentance does not end in despair, in condemnation. No. True repentance leads to joy. So that the life of a Christian is a paradox, really. He's the most sorrowful person here on earth, and yet he's the most joyous person here on earth. True repentance does not condemn. And the life of a Christian is a life of daily repentance. We are vastly worst more than we ever think of it. 
the heart is deceitful above all things is there anything here on earth that is desperately wicked more than the heart Jeremiah doesn't say it is moderately wicked it is desperately wicked he says who can know it you and I cannot know it the only person who knows how desperately wicked we are it is God God can only God is the one who knows the depth of our sin so I must make sure that I'm not sinning externally my hands are clean but also I'm not sinning internally my heart is purified I want to please him I want to live for him I must turn away from my sin I must grieve over my sin and this is be wretched verse 9 be wretched this word means to suffer affliction you think of that it doesn't sound very good you see there's no room for taking sin lightly this is not the idea that you you mourn and you cry over your sin and you think that you'll get grace from your sinning no oh, sorry for, from your tears or from your from your mourning grace is undeserved favor there's nothing you cannot mourn enough to receive the grace of god why because grace is undeserved favor grace is a gift from god and the thing with pride is that it opposes the grace of god pride loves works brethren pride goes hand in hand with self-righteousness Pride hates the idea of free sovereign grace. It hates the idea of sovereign election. Pride is what drives man-centered theology. Pride hates total depravity of man. It hates irresistible grace. Pride says that I earn what I get. A proud person says, think of, thinks of how good he is. A proud person trusts in their, in their own ability and their work to, in, in what they do. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he asks them, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If you received everything that you have as a Christian, as a gift, why do you boast why are you proud a proud person will boast about something that he has done pride is the heart and soul of works righteousness I want to remind you this afternoon brethren that we were not born believing in the doctrines of grace we have the Adamic DNA interwoven in our hearts our works righteousness if we go on unchecked, we'll end up resisting the grace of God. To repent, we must have an accurate view of ourselves. Look at the spiritual mirror of God's word. And that should cause you to, to sorrow. The world tells us to build ourselves up 
pride wants to be recognized and to be praised, pride tells you that you can do it. But when you look at scripture, what does it tell you? You're helpless. You cannot do it. You must acknowledge the truth. You are, you are in need of his grace. And so we go to God. If today you are told that um, there's a bursary that is being given, and for you to receive that bursary, you must go with your national ID. So you go there at first, you don't have your national ID, you ask to be given the bursary, and you're told you, be, you can't be given because you lack your national ID. The person tells you, go bring your national ID and I'll give you as much as you want. The same case with us. Grace will be given to us, but there's one condition. That condition is humility. Humble yourselves. And the more you humble yourself, more grace is given to you. For that to happen, we've seen, you must actively make the Lord God the Lord of your life. Submit to Him. And then secondly, you must draw near to Him. Communion, fellowship, draw near to His word and prayer. Use those means to draw near to Him. And then lastly, you must repent of your sin. You must turn away from your sin in mourning, in humility to Him, and be brought low. You must see yourself the way God sees you. And when you're humble, God looks down from heaven and he gives you more grace. Brethren, we cannot afford anything but to be humble. Because if we don't, we receive no grace from God. In the value of vision, in the introduction part, um, Arthur Bennett says, He says, <clears throat> let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this afternoon. We thank you for its great warnings, its great encouragement to us. Help us to live according to it, Lord. We are a proud people. We are blind of eye and dull of ear. We pray that you may expose our sin. Show us how sinful we are. And enable us, Lord, to truly repent of our pride. Pride which is insidious and, and holds us so tightly. We pray that you may help us to submit under the lordship of christ and to submit under his name these things we pray in jesus name